This past Wednesday, I came home late, around 11 p.m. It was a stressful day, and when I came home, my wife Cindy was still awake, and she could tell I had a tough day. And she knows me well, so she asked me if I wanted some food to cheer me up. Of course, I said, yes, absolutely. So she said, you go relax, and so I changed my pajamas and uh, jumped into bed and watched Netflix to decompress. And uh, she went on to order uh, some of my favorite Taiwanese snacks uh, and some milk tea from Grab Food Delivery. After about 40 minutes, uh, her phone buzzed, telling her that the food had arrived at the church, and she told me that I could stay in bed, and she would go get the food, uh, and she left to go pay the driver. I thought to myself, what a sweet wife. Well, I was comfortably in bed, and... I was wondering why it had taken her so long to come back. About 15 to 20 minutes had passed. And you know, where you get to that place where you're so comfortable in bed, you don't want to get up for any reason. And I didn't bother to go check on what was wrong or why it had taken so long. Then I began to hear a lot of buzzing from the apartment gate intercom. Buzz, 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 about 30 buzzes. And I kind of got annoyed. I said, why can't Cindy go get the food? They're buzzing to let us know that the food delivery had arrived. But I was too comfortable to get up. And then another 20 buzzes on the intercom. I got upset. I got annoyed. And so I was in a very comfortable position, but I got up. And I went to the intercom, and I pressed to open the apartment gate. About five minutes later, Cindy comes into the room. She is angry. Why didn't you open the door the first time I buzzed? I said, I thought you said you were getting the food. She said, I did, but after paying for the food at the guardhouse, the apartment gate locked behind me automatically, and I was carrying your food, and I didn't bring out the keys. So I buzzed you many times with the hopes that you would get annoyed enough to get out of bed to help me bring in your food. At that moment, I wanted to say something sarcastic, such as, where is service with a smile? But I realized it was one of those moments where it's better that you keep your mouth shut. One of those moments where you just simply say, I'm sorry. See, I learned the lesson I taught myself last week and just say thank you. As I thought about that incident, I think to myself, what has happened to service with a smile? Especially when it comes to serving the Lord. When we are called or challenged to serve the Lord and to serve the Lord by serving others, why is it for many of us such a burden, a chore, We don't do it with a smiling face. It is bothersome to us. I think it's because we have forgotten to daily practice the spiritual discipline of service. You see, if it's a habit for us to serve our Lord daily as we serve others, then we realize there is a goal greater than our own needs, and we do it with a smile. And yet, because we do it so infrequently, perhaps once a month when we are reminded to serve the Lord, then somehow when we do it, we are bothered. We're 
bothered because it affects our schedule. And so we don't elicit the joy that should naturally come from serving the Lord. Well, you want to take a look at this spiritual discipline of service this morning. And so I would like you, if you have your Bibles, to turn with me to the Gospel of John. John chapter 13, as we exposit verses 1 to 17. Here in John chapter 13, verses 1 to 17, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will set forth the example of what service needs to look like. If you are new with us, or relatively new, we are in a sermon series entitled, Not First, Practicing Daily Spiritual Disciplines That Remind Me of My Place in This World. Service will remind us that it is not about us. It is about God, it is about others. Now as John will talk about this incident with Jesus, he will begin by laying forth three foundations of what is needed before we can serve effectively. Three bases for service. Look at me at the first one in verses 1 and 2. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, that he should depart from this world to the Father, having, note this, loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And supper being ended, the devil already, having put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. Now the gospel writer John gives us the context by which this incident is going to take place. Jesus knows that tonight will be the night when he will be arrested. And he will soon die for the sins of mankind. And there he is gathered in what is called the upper room, celebrating with his close disciples the very last meal they will have together before he dies. Here, John is writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he gives us a glimpse into the heart of Jesus. He says, note this, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Who are these his own that the Bible is talking about? It's us. It's the people of the world. It's humanity. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, God himself, died for us, as you know, because of his love for us. He desires such fellowship with sinful people that he would be willing to die for us because of his love. What is made more poignant and more impressive about this love is that we have a contrasting verse in verse 2. Here in verse 2, we find out that Judas had already left that Last Supper meal because he was going to betray Jesus. What you have here is a contrast between love and betrayal. Jesus loved those who would betray him. That's all of us. Even Judas. He would go to the cross for everyone who will reject him. And it is this love in contrast to betrayal that will form the basis of what he will do as an act of service on the cross when he lays down his life for us and what he will do for his disciples in this chapter. If you're taking notes, here's number one. Love forms the basis of service. Love forms the basis of service. When we serve, 
we must ask ourselves the question, why am I doing this? Why am I doing what I am doing? To be seen or because I really genuinely love and care for the people I am serving? And that's why you can notice two types of employees. When they're tasked to do menial jobs, boring jobs, in your opinion, how can you have a group of employee who's always cheerful and, and happy and joyful? And on the other hand, you have employees who are always grumbling and they're doing the same thing. You see, employees who are cheerful and joyful and happy, even though they're doing the most menial of jobs, is because they have an attitude that says, I love what I'm doing. I appreciate and care very much for the customers I am serving. Love undergirds their service. And then you have those who just simply complain about what they're doing because they're always thinking about the meager salary that they make. They're thinking always about the long commute they have to make. They're thinking about the long hours they have to put in. The rude people who never return their kindness. And as you dwell on those things, your attitude begins to change. And you don't care to serve, in your mind, people who you believe are undeserving. Without love, you would not want to serve others. And that's why John wants us to understand the mindset of Jesus. It is his love. To the very end, in spite of betrayers like Judas, is the reason why he would lay down his life as the ultimate act of service. Mandy Chu, in an article, comments these words, I often look at people with a strange curiosity, especially those who have bags under their eyes, and yet they can happily say things like, I've only gotten four hours of sleep this week. When I hear those words, I think, what heartless monster of a boss is doing this to you, working you to death, that you have only gotten four hours of sleep this week. And then I notice the chubby baby in their arms, and I suddenly understand their smile in spite of their lack of sleep. You understand? Serving the Lord and serving others is very difficult. But just like a parent taking care of a child, it's worth it because you realize it's not about you. It's about the one that you love. Yes, I know parents will complain that they don't get enough sleep. But can you imagine a parent who always complains to their child, you know, because of you, I didn't get enough sleep. Because of you, I never have money for myself. Because of you, I can't go on vacation. What is that child going to think? That child's going to think, my goodness, my parents don't love me. Yet very few parents do that. Even though they are tired, they have a lack of resources, they're tied to stay at home. It's because of love. And a parent loves their children, so serving them is no longer a hardship. So it is with our Lord, who exemplifies that love forms the basis of service. You do things for those that you love. 
if you love people that you serve, it's not a hardship. I want you to understand something. Do not confuse and do not equate the hardship of Jesus' suffering with any sort of hardship as he struggles to do the Father's will. Yes, we all acknowledge that Jesus suffered as he went to the cross, but he was doing it with a, perhaps a big smile on his face. He was gladly going to the cross because of his love. Yes, he suffered. But don't so focus on his suffering that you forget that he gladly died for you and me. That's the point John is trying to get across. He loved us to the end. Now the second basis of service, look with me, verse 3. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going to God. Now in verse 3, what we have here is almost a, a resume of the Son of God, God himself. John begins by saying that the Father has given all things into his hands. Now we believe in one God. We believe in the triunity, the triune God. One God, three persons. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Each person of the Godhead is equally God, one God. And yet each person of the Godhead has a unique role. The Son of God, the Bible tells us, was given from the Father the role of being the creator, if you read through the Scriptures. It is the second person of the Godhead, the pre-incarnate Christ, who created the entire universe. The Bible tells us it is Jesus who is the sustainer of all life. The fact that you have breath today is because Jesus, the second person of the Godhead, has given you breath and life. He is the sustainer of the universe. But there's more. The Bible tells us he comes from God, meaning he is divine. He is God himself. All the qualities we often ascribe to God the Father, his sovereignty, his omnipotence, is equally found in God the Son. God is just a sovereign in the second person of the Godhead as Jesus in his sovereignty, is in omniscience, in his omnipotence, in his justice, in his righteousness, in his holiness. And here the Bible tells us he is also going to God. He is returning to his heavenly home where he is worshipped all day and all night. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. That is being spoken to by heaven's angels to the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Where he, Jesus Christ, commands the angelic heavenly realms. The totality of the person of Jesus, as recounted by John in verse 3, is that he is worthy to be worshipped, worthy to be revered. Now, why am I making such a big deal about this? Because what's going to happen is we are now going to be very surprised that the one who is deserving of all worship and reverence is going to do something very unexpected. The greatness of who... The Lord is, verse 3, and now look what he does, verse 4. He rose from supper, laid aside his garments, took a towel and girded himself. Verse 5, 
After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with a towel with which he was girded. Of all the people who could be excused from washing other people's feet, it would be Jesus. And yet, he does just that. He does what is very much unexpected. Verse 3 talked about his greatness. And then verse 4 and verse 5 talks about his humble act of service. Jesus washed the feet of his disciples. Now foot washing today and foot washing of the ancient Near East is very different. Foot washing in those days was considered the lowest form of work that only slaves and servants did. Why? You have to remember that back in those days, there was no such thing as indoor plumbing. So what do you do with all of the human waste that is collected in a household? No one takes it into a pail and walks it 500 yards, digs a hole, and dumps it out there. They just take all the human waste in a given house, open the door, and dump it on the streets. That's not me making it up. That is what the Roman historians tell us what happens. Think about how dirty that is. What do you do with all of the animal inner parts, the blood, the guts, as you are preparing your evening meal? What do you do with all that? You open your front door and you dump it out in the streets. The roads were dirt roads. And so combined with the grime and the mud that forms from whatever type of liquid is on the road, it was really dirty to walk along the streets of any city in the ancient Near East. And also remember, there weren't socks back in those days. And there was no option whether you wanted to wear shoes open-toed or closed-toed. All the footwear of that time was opened Sandals. And therefore, the feet gathered all of that filth. And would you want anyone walking to your house, carrying in all the grime of the outside into your house? Of course not. That's why every household would employ servants and slaves to wash the feet of those entering a house. In fact, if you could not afford a servant or a slave then every home would provide a basin of water right at the door entrance where you could wash your feet. In fact, it was considered inhospitable not to provide for this service. So when the divine Son of God, God himself, Jesus Christ, took a towel and began to wash the feet of his disciples, an act only reserved for the lowest of society, he was displaying one of the greatest acts of humility. And that's the second thing, number two, that undergirds any service. Number two, humility forms the basis of service. My friends, if you and I never humble ourselves, we will never be able to truly serve another. You know, there are those who believe, even in the church, that there are jobs that the Lord has called them to that is somehow beneath them. They just can't bear to do it. It's too low of a job. Let me tell you something, my friends. 
Every person here, regardless of your social status, can do everything and anything. The question is, are we humble enough to do it? Are we humble enough to do it? We can all do it. But oftentimes we don't do it because we're not humbled. Humility is a state of mind where you don't care what other people will think or say or do. And that's the problem of why it's so hard in our culture, our Asian culture, to do things we believe are too menial a task. Because we're so concerned what others will think if we do it. What will they think? They will make fun of me. They'll begin to gossip. Do you think Jesus cared that people would gossip that he washed the feet of his disciples? Absolutely not. He did it because he wanted to serve. Humility foundations and serves as the basis of service. And of course, you shouldn't worry about what other people think of you. I like what Wolf Rinke says. Don't worry about what other people think of you because if you knew how seldom they think about you, you would be insulted. Think about that. We're so worried. Oh, what will they think? Guess what? They don't care. They're not talking about you. This is not a problem in our church, but this serves as a reminder and encouragement. I know it's not much of a problem because I'm really so appreciative of our volunteers, especially as I watch them serve the community. We had our three-day garage sale just this past week to help uh, those in our community or those who are less fortunate. And I know serving and volunteering to help in the garage sale is not a fun work. It's, it's dirty. It's, it's tiring. It's menial work. But I love seeing how there were so many in our church, many successful businessmen and successful businesswomen, the corporate types, young and old, who volunteered when the call was put out for help. You have to humble yourself to do something like that. There is no hierarchy in service. Listen carefully. You can't serve and say, well, I want to be number one. I want to be number two. I want to be number three. There is no hierarchy in service. Humility must be the basis of why we serve. You see, every church is filled with willing people. Some willing to work and others willing to let them. The difference, it boils down to humility. And Jesus exemplified this, being the Son of God, God himself, and washing the feet of his disciples. Look at the third foundation of service, verse 6 to 11. Then Jesus came to Simon Peter, and Peter said to him, Lord, are you washing my feet? Jesus answered and said to him, what I am doing, you, you do not understand now, but you will know after this. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Now we have the most outspoken of the disciples, Peter. He could not believe that the Lord is about to wash his feet. He could not allow Christ to serve him in such a lowly task. 
And some of us would say, well, you know, Peter, it's very commendable what you said. In fact, that's very Asian. We can't let someone who is so much greater than me serve me. And then the Lord tells Peter that he doesn't fully grasp what he is doing. What Jesus is doing is that he is exemplifying service in a way that will fully only be realized and understood when he dies on the cross. But what he's doing as he is serving them by watching their feet is picturing a greater act of service. The ultimate act of service when one lays down his life for another. And in this case, Jesus will soon lay down his life for the world. So what Jesus was saying to Peter is, if you don't accept this act of service in allusion to his act of service in his soon coming death, then you will have no relationship or fellowship with me. It's a theological answer. But then look at verse 9 to 11. Simon Peter said to the Lord, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, he who is bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you, for he knew who would betray him. Therefore he said, you are not all clean. Peter, not fully realizing what Jesus was saying, says, all right, if being washed by you gets me closer to you, then give me a bath, Lord. Wash my head, wash my hands. And interestingly, Jesus says to him, you are already clean. If you think about it, that's true. The Bible tells us it's after supper. That means they already had their feet washed as they walked into the upper room. And what Jesus was saying was this. He was referring to the washing of one's spiritual life, which is needed because of sin. That's why Jesus, in the ultimate act of service in his death, clean cleanses us from sin's dirt in our lives to those who accept. And Jesus knew that in verse 11, Peter, that's not talking about Judas, Peter would betray him. Peter, we know the story, he's going to betray Jesus three times before the rooster crows. You're going to need this act of service in sacrifice on the cross for you to be clean. You see what Jesus is exemplifying in this exchange with Simon Peter is that he is expressing that number 3 sacrifice forms the basis of service. Number 3, sacrifice forms the basis of service. If you're going to serve one another, you're going to have to sacrifice something. I like the story told by a hospital volunteer and she writes this story. Many years ago when I was working as a volunteer at Stanford Hospital, I got to know a little girl named Liz who was suffering from a rare and serious disease. Her only chance of recovery appeared to be a blood transfusion from her five-year-old brother who had miraculously survived the same disease and had developed the antibodies in his blood needed to combat the illness. The doctor explained the situation to her little brother and added the boy and asked the boy if he would be willing to give his blood to his sister. I saw him hesitate for only a moment before taking a deep breath and saying, yes, I'll do it if it will save Liz. As the transfusion progressed, he lay in bed next to his sister and smiled as we all did, seeing the color returning to her cheeks. Then his face grew pale and his smile faded 
he looked up at the doctor and said with a trembling voice, will I start to die right away? You see, being young, the boy had misunderstood the doctor. He thought he was going to have to give all his blood to her. It puts it into a different light. When you serve others knowing that you must sacrifice something. Jesus knew it would require his life to serve all humanity in providing eternal life. And yet, he still did it. The problem of our generation today is that we are so entitled, or we believe we are entitled to certain things, that's very hard for us to sacrifice anything. And because we're not willing to sacrifice, very few people really serve in such a way that makes an impact in the Lord's work. For me, I think out of the three, sacrifice must have to be the hardest one. Love for others, compassion for others. Oftentimes we are moved in our hearts to do so. Being humble enough to do what God has called us to do. Yeah, we can do it. But what about sacrifice? It's a tough one for even people in the church. Because we're always looking at our schedules to see if it's worth doing. If I were to ask you this morning, as I've often done, and I told you hypothetically, I need your help. I need your help because we have some budgetary issues. We can't hire any more janitors. I need your help to clean up the church. How many of you are willing to volunteer? I want to believe that many in our church would raise their hand and volunteer. I know you would. But what have I told you? Oh, and by the way, I need your help most especially on Christmas Day. I have a feeling a lot of hands will start going down very slowly. Because you're thinking, but I have plans. I have a Christmas tradition. What if the day I needed your help was your birthday? And you tell me, Pastor, any day but my birthday. Because on my birthday, I'm going to celebrate the day I was born. You sure you can't help me? Not any other day. And hands start to come down. What, what have I told you? I, I need your help every week. And it happens to be the day or the night when your wife allows you to play basketball once a week. That's a tough one, isn't it? But Lord, I need the exercise. You see... We've forgotten that serving others requires sacrifice. Without it, it becomes very difficult to serve. We now begin to serve out of our own convenience instead of serving out of our own inconvenience. And no wonder it's so difficult to challenge men and women to really serve. Because everyone is always thinking about what's in it for them. And so, yes, we will all say we serve, but it's a selfish service, if I could be so blunt. Here's how someone contrasted selfish service and true service. Selfish service is impressed with the big deal. True service finds it almost impossible to distinguish the small from the large service. Selfish service requires 
external rewards, true service, rest contented in secrecy. Selfish service is highly concerned about results. True service is free of the need to calculate results. Selfish service picks and chooses whom to serve. True service is indiscriminate in its ministry. Selfish service is affected by your moods and your whims. True service ministers simply and purely. When called to serve, what does your service look like? Because the Bible teaches us that sacrifice in service is essential. Jesus could have served us in many different ways, but in the one way who are truly counted, he sacrificed his own life for us. That's how you and I have eternal life. Now, having been told about the three foundations of service, or what defines service, love, humility, sacrifice, Jesus will now bring it all together and give a command. Look at verse 12. So when he had washed their feet, taken his garments, and sat down again, he said to them, Do you know what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you say, well, for so I am. If I then, your teacher and Lord, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. Verse 15. For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Most assuredly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is he who is sent greater than he who sent him. So after Jesus has washed the feet of his now 11 disciples, they all sat down. He's going to teach them. He says to them, I give you a command. You should do as I've done to you. You must serve others. It is a call to serve others. And for you, there is no exemption because I am your example. And that's the big idea. That's the main theme. That's, that's the purpose of what Jesus had done. A call to serve others without an exemption because Jesus is the example. Now, Jesus is not setting forth an ordinance of foot washing where we're all called to wash each other's feet. Verse 15 tells us, is an example by which you should learn to serve one another. He says, you call me Lord, you call me Master. If any of you believe that you are better than Jesus as the Son of God, then you have an exemption from serving others. Anyone? I hope not. It would be heresy if you raised your hands. Jesus said, if you are not greater than me, and you call me Lord and Master, then you better be willing to go out and serve others. It's funny when you understand what these disciples were actually arguing. Right before the foot washing, you know what these disciples were talking about? Jesus is going to the cross. He's telling them that he's going to die for mankind. You know what they're arguing? They are arguing who will be number one, number two, and number three when the Lord establishes his kingdom. They are playing politics. They are jockeying for position. 
We read this from the other gospel accounts. Peter wants to be number one when Jesus establishes his kingdom. He wants to be prime minister. John and James, the sons of Zebedee, they want to be number one and two. And they were quite political. They knew how to work the system. You know what they did? They got their mother involved. Matthew chapter 20, verse 20 to 28. Who's going to refuse an elderly woman? And so John and James gets their mother to go to Jesus and says, Jesus, when you establish your kingdom, would you put John and James, my sons, to be number one and two in your kingdom? Everyone is jockeying for who would be number one. And Jesus shows them what it means to follow him. They must be so embarrassed to have Jesus washed their feet. Jesus calls us to serve. And because we are not greater than him, it applies to all of us. Now, we're not going to spend a lot of time talking about ways to serve. You know what they are. In the context of this church, the church always has a need for more workers. You know, a lot of people, they just think, well, the things that the church is looking for, the young people can do it. They have more energy. That's a cop-out of a statement. Nowhere in the scripture does it say that there is an age limit for serving God. Yes, energy levels may decrease as age increases, but there are so many different types of ministries that you can be a part of. If for lack of a better ministry, one of the highest calls is that you can be involved in praying for the church and the leaders of this church. Are you guys praying for the church every week as an act of service? Some of you, and I know, complain, Pastor, I'd like to serve in some ministries. Uh, the shuttle service is of interest, uh, ushering, greeters, but Pastor, I've got to wake up so early. I've got to come earlier. And I want to tell you guys, yes, absolutely. Because there is sacrifice involved with service. And if you're never going to sacrifice to come a little bit earlier, it's going to be very hard for you to get involved. But it doesn't fit my schedule. Well, something's got to give. Sometimes we say, well, you can serve others by taking the shuttle. You don't even have to help operate it. You can pick up a friend Carpool. Oh, but pastor, what if I have to go somewhere else? What if I can't wake up early enough to take the shuttle or to carpool with someone? Well, again, sacrifice. If the Lord can wash the feet of his disciples, you tell me what you can't do. You know, that's why in this church, we consider it the highest of privileges to serve the Lord. It really is. To serve the King of Kings is the highest of privilege. That's why you won't force or beg you. And I've instructed our staff very clearly not to collect, not to beg you to serve. 
If after two or three times of encouragement and you don't want the privilege of service, that's fine. That opportunity goes to someone else. And I know in our Asian context, we have to be called. You need to call me, pastor, to see if I will help you. Well, here's the reality. There is one who has called each and every one of you to serve, and that's Jesus Christ. In verse 15 onwards, he says, you need to serve me and others for my sake. And that's why we consider service the highest of privileges, and that's why we have tough standards if you want to serve in this church. Horror the thought, you actually have to come to church to serve in the church. We want to make sure that you're spiritually grounded before you serve in any ministry. That's why we ask that you become a member of this church so that there can be accountability and transparency as you serve. And of course, it goes beyond church. You can serve the Lord in your place of work, your school, your family, reflecting Christ and what he did as an example so that others will see that a believer serves others. You can lend a listening ear. You can give up your seat to an older person on the MRT or the LRT. You can help carry a bag of someone who's struggling with carrying all their groceries. You can help an elderly walk across the street unstable in their legs. It's not calling you to be a boy scout or a girl scout. It's simply the scriptures telling us to serve one another. In how you serve and why you serve, if you do it daily, it reminds us that we're not first. Because you're able to check your pride as you humbly do it. You're able to realize it's not about your convenience, it's about your sacrifice when you serve others. You realize that it is about a genuine love for others as opposed to hating them even if you don't know them. And all of these wonderful principles are wound up in this act called service, which will remind each of us daily we are not first. That's why if you're not serving the Lord in any capacity, in or out of the church, you will have a very difficult time understanding sacrifice, humility, and genuine love. Sad to say, there are a lot of people who who come to church And they come to church with the expectation that they are served, not to serve. You know, it's very interesting. In my pastorate, I've noticed, and this is not an indictment, but this is a generalization, that people who serve often complain less. Do you notice that? People who are serving the Lord in any capacity, both in and out of the church, often complain less. Because if you come to church expecting to be served, you always find fault in the service level. Isn't that true? We're not a perfect church. And so if you expect to be served in this church, you will complain that not enough people say hi to you. You didn't say hi to me. I'm very angry. Or you will come and you will say, what's up with this church? Too many people can't find parking. What do they do? Expect me to take a shuttle? Others will come and they'll say, oh, the preaching this morning, boring. The pastor yelled at me. I'm hurt. 
I need to hear a funny story. I, I need to have my heart warmed with fuzzy stories about love. You begin to understand why men and women complain. Men and women who come with an entitlement that they are to be served misses the entire experience of community life in a church. But those who are serving find it less opportune to complain because they see that they're doing their best and others are as well. So mark your own hearts. What are you doing for the Lord? Are you serving the Lord? Serving the Lord is really one of the highest of calls. I hope you will understand that. I remember the story of William Carey, who's called the father of modern missions. He served the Lord in India for many years. And he gradually became very concerned about the attitude of his son, Felix. You see, Felix, as a young man, had promised to become a missionary. And his heart was to serve the Lord. And yet, the father noticed he reneged on his vows when he was appointed ambassador to Burma by the Queen of England. William Carey wrote to his friend asking prayers for his son with these words. Pray for Felix. He has degenerated into an ambassador of the British government when he should be serving the King of Kings. Now, I'm not knocking if anyone ever is appointed as ambassador of the Philippines to another country. It's a wonderful, honorable calling. But the point of this story is this. There are many who look upon the calling to serve God as a calling that they do only when they have time, only when they have the energy, only when they are motivated. We forget that in whatever position God has placed us in, in whatever circumstance, it is the highest of callings to faithfully serve the Lord and display Christ's likeness. That's what the Bible tells us. No one is exempt from the daily practice of the spiritual discipline of serving others for the sake of Christ. Finally, look at verse 17. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. There is blessing. There's always blessing when it comes to serving the Lord. But here, in the words of Jesus, blessed are you if you do them. That's a promise. You will be blessed. And again, we don't have time to go through all of the blessings that come from serving others for the sake of Christ. But one that comes to mind is spiritual rewards. When we serve the Lord, we earn heavenly rewards that will never rust or decay or be stolen. It's a reward that is forever. When we serve the Lord, it checks our hearts. Service is a wonderful way to ensure that we have an intimate walk with Jesus Christ. It first shows us that we're no better than Christ, and we're no better than God, and so it, it prunes our hearts to see if the love that we display to others is a fake love or a genuine love. If you want to know whether you love someone or not, in the biblical sense, serve the people 
that you don't like. That will get you to begin to think and change your heart about loving them. It also changes our hearts to ensure that what we do in our motives is correct. If you're serving others, it should make you feel good, absolutely. There's joy that comes from serving the Lord. But it should be secondary to how it makes the other person feel. You know, a lot of people, because they don't know any better, they proclaim, I have served and I feel good. Again, this is a picture of the entitlement generation. When you serve, my friends, it's not about you. You may feel wonderful, I'm, and I praise God for that. But it should be secondary to how the person who is helped feels. That will keep your motives in check. Acts of service keep us humble. You know, humility is one of those funny things that the more you think about humility, I've mentioned this before, the more you think about humility, the more prideful you become. Lord, keep me humble. And you begin to think about all the accomplishments. Keep me humble in spite of my accomplishments. Well, you know, I'm actually pretty good. So now you become prideful. It's very hard. It's, it's a battle of the mind that can be resolved when you serve. When you are called to do things that you would not normally do, service helps you become humble. That's why it should be no surprise to you if when you call the church, sometimes you hear me picking up the phone, you hear certain pastoral staff members pick up the phone, because everyone knows in our staff, when there is a need, it's all hands on deck, everyone helps. There is no hierarchy in service. And if they ever complain, well, guess what? They're not going to have a job very much longer. And it goes the same with everyone here. Acts of service as a blessing from the Lord is a way to keep our hearts in check. Yes, it makes us feel good because one of the blessings of service is joy. The joy of knowing that you have done something beyond yourself. The joy of knowing that what you have accomplished is for the Lord and His kingdom. There is joy in that. You are doing it for a greater cause. You are doing it for a greater purpose. And it's not about you. It's all about Him. That's how joy serves as a blessing when we serve. I've met many types of people. The most joyful people are the ones who are serving. I want you to think about that. The most joyful people in the world are those who are serving. That goes across the board. It's not about them having the most things. It's not about them having the highest of positions. The most joyful people are those who are serving. That's a blessing. Now, all the spiritual disciplines, service is one that you cannot practice only in your mind. Submission, we've talked about that. Confession. Service requires your two hands. You can leave from this place thinking about service, service, Lord, I will serve. And you will get home and you will watch Netflix and you say, well, I had the intention of serving. It doesn't count until you actually 
use your hands and feet and mouth, whatever God has given you to serve others. And so, what will you do? The one who has exemplified the greatest act of service through his death on the cross. And at that moment, in an example to his disciples in the washing of their feet, he calls us to do the same. And since none of us are as great and as big as God, we all need to serve in humility, in sacrifice, in love for our benefit because when we serve, we are blessed. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this morning, thank you for reminding all of us, including myself, about the discipline of service. May each of us every day look at our places of work, our school, our church, our family, as an opportunity to serve others for your sake. And through a genuine service, our hearts will always be aligned in the right place. And in our service, the name of Jesus will be proclaimed. Challenge this church to move. To move in such a way that is not for our own glory, but to be called to action for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.